Shabbat, and tonight we are fortunate to have Rabbi Chagai Reznikov, who is uh, a teacher at Yeshiva Tchovavei Torah at the YCT Rabbinical School. Uh, that's the rabbinical school that I went to. And uh, he graduated there in 2014, and it's pretty rare that this happens where someone who graduates then joins the faculty. Um, but in addition to being a teacher, he's the director of, the, uh, com- uh, of community learning at, at, the, at the rabbinical school. And is really very, very invested in the world of Talmud study. Some, a lot of the passages we'll look at tonight. Does everyone have a source packet? Okay, all right. I'm going to bring some more in. I'll bring some more into the room. Why don't we... Um, oh, you need one also. Yeah, that would help. Um, you, you don't have it all memorized? Thank you so much for coming out. I'm trying to decide. It's always difficult when you kind of had the expectation there were going to be more people, and then there are fewer, and how do you exactly figure out? But... Well, we'll work with things in the, in, the, in the configuration that they are. This is a, a topic that I've been thinking about going back years and years, the basis of which really begins here. The rabbis see the uh, prototype of the peacemaker in the priest Aaron, Moses' brother. Um, but when you think about what are the different things that Aaron did in the Torah, mm, Peacemaking is not exactly um, the major uh, accomplishment or the major thing that we think of. And in fact, often the closest thing that I can think of in, term, uh, in, his, in, in, in Aaron's uh, choices or activities in the Torah really closely coincide with the portion of the week this week, um, which is he's intimately involved in the golden calf. Um, and so the question to me is, what was it that the rabbis saw in Aaron that uh, led them to sort of to create him as their model peacemaker? Um, and then the other question really is, um, and what was the place of a peacemaker in, in the rabbinic tradition? And where does that idea of someone who's uh, attempting to compromise, attempting to find ways to bring people together... Where does that role uh, belong in leadership? And I'd like to follow through some of the sources. Um, What we have in front of us, with the exception, I think, of one source, is um, a series of sources that are really from the uh, Torah Shabal Peh, the Oral Torah. And I'm going to refer to the the written Torah, um, but not specifically in terms of of the verses. We'll talk more about the stories, unless there's a specific... uh, um, uh, verse that really needs to be needs to be said uh, um, and spelled out. I'd love to hear any kinds of questions or comments that you have as we go through. Um, and we have few enough people that actually I'm think I'm going to um, ask people to uh, to read some of the sources. And uh, and if you don't feel comfortable reading the sources, everything will be in English. But uh, if you don't feel comfortable reading, please just feel free to pass. And I hope I haven't uh, I haven't embarrassed you. But it's a a nice way of sort of bringing everybody together. Um, so let's start with the very first, um, the very first source. Fred, can you uh, can you read for us in English? No. <laughs> Sometimes. Yalel <laughs> says, "Be like the students of Aaron, love peace, pursue peace, love the creations, and bring them closer to Torah." So this is Hillel. Um, do people have any kind of sense of Hillel? Does anybody have any any recollection of what kind of a person Hillel was from the stories of the? The, the the Talmud or or stories you may have heard or, or is this somebody who I should introduce? Introduce 
It's all okay. You may have heard the story of someone who came to, there were two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, and you may have heard the story of someone who came to uh, the rabbi Shammai and said to him, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. And Shammai said, "Uh, what are you talking about? Get out of here. Don't waste my time. The person then went to sort of, okay, that that school is close to me. He went to the school of Hillel and asked Hillel uh, to teach him the entire Torah on while I stood on one foot. And Hillel said as follows, what is hateful to you, don't do to other people. That's the entire Torah. Everything else is commentary. Now go and learn it. Two pieces. First of all, there is an essential piece of the Torah. And then the second piece is, uh, and now you need to go learn everything else. But the message that Hillel is, is adopting, Tamar, I can't see you over there, so I'm going to slide up. That's no good either. So Shmuel, you're going to have to move back. Okay. Um, the message that Hillel is talking about is, what is the essence of the Torah? I don't know if, didn't, what, if you had to sort of sum up the Torah from what he said, what you hate to be done unto you, notice that it's the reverse of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is not do unto others as you have them do unto you. Mm, do unto others can be a dicey proposition sometimes. That is to say, <laughs> just because you would want to, do, you just because you would want it done to you, doesn't necessarily mean that they want it done to them, right? This is the reverse. I don't know if it's the reverse. This is the. Uh, I don't know, a a negative way of stating it. Do not do to other people what you would not want to be done to you. I feel like that actually is a much safer safer way to go. Um, But what, according to Hillel, in that sort of context, is is the essence of the Torah? Yeah, Rhonda? He could have said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. That's what he could have said, right? That's the whole Torah, now go and, and learn the rest. But Hillel's message really is, get along. Treat other people properly. That's the essential message. So Hillel himself represents a kind of peacemaking uh, um, position. And he now takes says, who is my model? Or who is the model that everybody should be... Uh, um, should be following, that's the model of Aaron the priest. Why? He loves peace. He pursues peace. He loves the creation. He brings them closer to the Torah. Why is it students of Aaron and not Aaron? Well, uh, it is interesting. There are various versions of this, uh, um, of this statement. Some people say that, or there are some versions of the, of the text that say, be among the students of Aaron. That is to say, you cannot be Aaron what you can be is a student of Aaron. Learn from Aaron. Um, I think that the... <laughs> this is, goes back... You and I just had a conversation about uh, the importance of, of uh, um, examining the manuscripts and so on. <clears throat> this, to me, seems to be the, the dominant trend. Um, be like the students of Aaron. Um, but I think the message is still clear, which is um, be of those people who are following this path of peacemaking, loving peace, pursuing peace. And notice, there is a difference between loving peace and pursuing peace. And that's even, right, being someone who does not do to other people what they hate to be done to them, 
that doesn't necessarily indicate that you're necessarily a peacemaker, although putting it at the center of the Torah seems to indicate that the way we treat one another, I mean, and, and treat them, treat one another with sensitivity and kindness is essentially the most important thing. But that doesn't necessarily get to the full extent of what, of what this is talking about. You need to pursue peace, and we'll see a little later um, what, the, um, what it means to actually pursue peace. Uh, what, does, what, did, what did Aaron do, or what does the, the Midrash tell us that Aaron did? Um, so I have a question. Yes, go ahead. So this expression, is it talking about how Jews are supposed to treat each other, or how we're supposed to treat all other human beings? So, I mean, this statement, inter- <coughs> I hear two things in what you're saying, right? One is, is this about how Jews are supposed to act? Is this a prescription for Jews rather than, a, or, or a prescription for everyone. Um, and then the second question is, um, and is this the way that Jews are supposed to treat other Jews, or is this the way Jews are supposed to treat everyone? Correct. Um, so from the first, the first question, this appears in, in, in Masechet Pirkei Avot, in the Mishnah. This is a, a piece of the Jewish canon, and as such, I don't think that uh, Hillel himself, or, although, uh, excuse me, I was going to say something else, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, I don't think that Hillel himself would have had the expectation that non-Jews were going to have access to this teaching of his. Um, this is, this, this as, as a part of our canon, is something that um, fits into, is, it's a prescription for us, um, it's interesting. It goes a little bit back to that idea of don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to want to be done to you. I certainly don't want people from other religions informing me how I'm supposed to be living my life. Um, I suspect that Hillel is sort of following that that direction as well in in terms of making the comment to Jews who assent, who presumably are, are interested in following his his wisdom. The second question is more interesting which is, okay, so it's for Jews. That's fine. It's in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is, is, is essentially a text that's accessible to Jews. But, so is it, are Jews supposed to pursue peace with other Jews? Or are Jews supposed to pursue peace with everyone? Uh, what do you think, Alan? If you just look closely at well, this, do I, you see a, what? I, I, I would say that Jews should have peace with our own brothers because it's talking about bringing us closer to the Torah. Mm-hmm. Which obviously is is Jewish. Interesting. And if you look at uh, even in the Torah, I mean, from the beginning, there's a, there always seems to be conflict, Cain and Abel uh-huh. fighting each other, and uh, so we need peace amongst ourselves. So you said the fact that it says bringing them closer to the Torah, that actually seems to suggest well, who do we want to bring close to the Torah? Do we want to bring other people close to the Torah? Or do we want to bring Jews close to the Torah? So that suggests that Hillel is talking specifically about the way we treat Jews, uh, which uh, to me rings a little bit problematic. I don't know. Do you feel, do you feel some of the, the problematic of that? To say, oh, we make peace with Jews, but with everybody else, you know, it's, uh, it's up in the air. You can do whatever you, whatever you want or whatever you think is, is necessary. Um, well, that's not what I'm seeing. That's, you don't feel that. No, what I'm seeing is that, that Jews need to, we have to have, we, we need to have Kalal Yisrael. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that Hillel was thinking about Kalal Yisrael. I expect so. But uh, that's more what I'm thinking about. I'm not saying that people who aren't Jews should be treated badly. Uh-huh. So, 
I think that what you're saying is certainly true in this statement. That is to say, Hillel in prescribing to Jews, certainly if you think about sort of the extended uh, communities that exist in the world um, where you have your, yourself, your family, uh, maybe your extended family, your community, and then larger communities, one would think that the Jewish community would be sort of a more internal circle than, the, um, than maybe the larger community that includes Jews and non-Jews, although that may not be true for everybody in the room. Um, so I expect that Hillel does mean that for, for, for the Jews, and I think that the, the value of Klai Yisrael actually was an important value for him, um, which is probably why he didn't send a fellow away who said, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Um, something I didn't tell you is that that fellow himself was not actually Jewish. Um, that was somebody who came in and wanted to become Jewish, um, but only in this very sort of narrow way, and Hillel managed to find a way to include him and bring him in. Mm, I'm not sure that that still addresses the question of, okay, well, what about the larger community? But let's look back in this text, because I think there's an important line here that I think addresses the question of, okay, so pretty, pretty certainly Hillel's talking to Jews, and probably he's talking to the way Jews are supposed to treat Jews, but is there anything beyond that? Rhonda, I saw that you were, you were waiting, and then Randy, I know that you're also... Okay, that's a, that's a powerful statement. In other words, you're referring, I think, to the line in the Torah that says that we're supposed to be mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh, a nation of priests. Interesting, Aaron the priest, a nation of priests in a holy a holy nation. And then the other kind of I, the other uh, phrase that comes into into my mind is also o laguim, a light unto the nations. That as a model, people are supposed to see us and say, oh. That's the way we want to behave. Um, and then you made an important statement, which is the Torah itself doesn't have to be textual. The Torah can be modeled based on behavior, um, which I think is a powerful statement. Um, yes. Um, I, wonder, I wonder about bringing the Torah to everyone. Um, mm, that is to say, in a visceral way, through creating being a, being a model. Um, at the end of in, when when the time comes, when we say right, one of the prayers in, in, we say we finish by saying, "On that day, there will be uh, one God, and His name will be one." Uh, usually, I try to say, "And God's name will be one." Um, so, um, on that day, when everybody recognizes God, and recognizes the unity and, and singularity of God, is everybody supposed to be following the Torah? I'm not sure. Is everybody supposed to be acting like the Jews? I'm also not sure. Everybody's supposed to be keeping Shabbat? Everybody's supposed to be, uh, I don't know, doing, uh, um, doing what the Jews do? So uh, even, even as I say it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, but people keep Shabbat in a lot of different ways. Um, so maybe yes, maybe you should be keeping something that is, that is, that is part of this sort of, uh, um, collection of wisdom, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Randy, what were you going to say? 
So, um, this man that came to Hillel, did he want to converge? Yeah, he did. All right, so, did you know how you're supposed to, like, be turned away three times? You're supposed to ask, like, three times. So, it's very interesting. And, like, be turned away. So, if that's the case, where was Hillel in that three-person quest? So, interestingly, um, <laughs> I'm actually teaching uh, the laws of conversion to my students right now in the in at, uh, at YCT. Um Hillel is before the statement. Hillel came before the statement that you need to turn people away. I'm not sure that Hillel thought that you needed to do that. And in fact, there is a series of stories in the Talmud at that place about people who came to Hillel to be converted, uh, each for one more ridiculous reason than the next. Um, and each one, Hillel found a way to include them and find them a place um, in, the, in the Jewish world. Uh, so I'm not sure that Hillel necessarily... Um, Agreed or followed that particular precept, although that is a, an, an additional uh, law that comes that comes along. Yeah, Shmuley. I'm sure you want to move on, so I'll, I'll be brief. <laughs> but um, I feel like one obvious contemporary intersection in this issue we're dealing with the Jewish community relationship to the non-Jewish community, and who is this piece for? The sad reality is the half of the Jewish people, or maybe the whole Jewish people today, are not in a state of peace. I don't mean within the Jewish community. But we have a peace crisis in the Middle East. And let's bracket who's at fault for that. Right? Uh, who, who in particular is at, at fault? Uh, or if it's, yeah, let's bracket that issue. But the fact that there's not peace actually diminishes the respect for Torah in the world. Hmm. Right? Even if it's that, that's not fair, people think lower of Judaism in the world because they view Israel or Jews as part of the blame for peace. So it's sort of interesting that when we can't achieve peace, the, the relationship to Torah, the, the Jewish moral enterprise itself is diminished in some sense. Mm. So I think that's sort of one other intersection of this question of Jew and Gentile, and wh what does it mean to, to represent peace for its own sake, but also represent it for the other values we attempt to bring to the table, in a sense. Thank you, that's very powerful. Um, uh, one, one thing that I guess that comes to mind mm -hmm. is that you're correct both internally and externally. That is to say, when Alan says we need a Klal Yisrael that's unified, uh, I mean, that didn't come in a vacuum. That's a statement of recognizing that um, although this room is a, is a good representation of a kind of unity uh, in the larger Jewish world, we really are facing um, a crisis of disunity. Um, and, and then also in terms of the relations of Jews to, to non-Jews as well. Um, and I would say that both of those are really do sort of uh, um, lower the the status or the the um, the image of Torah in the world. I'm still I, I'm, I I still want to to bring out before I move on, no matter how much uh, uh, I'm shivied along. Um, I do want to bring out um, one particular line because I think this is an important thing. How do I know? I'll just say it straightforwardly. What would suggest from this line? So Alan told us that. Um, that the, the line about Torah suggests that it's actually about the way that you treat Jews. If you're bringing them closer to the Torah, that suggests Jews. Rhonda said, mm, but maybe we're actually modeling a, a kind of a lifestyle that other people, even non-Jews, would want to follow. What would suggest something along the lines of that, that Rhonda says textually from within this piece? Creations. It doesn't say love the Jews. And you'd be amazed at how many times in the course of, uh, 
of reading the uh, of reading descriptions of great rabbis that'll say he he loved Jews. That's who he loved. Like, okay, that's fantastic to love Jews. Um, but the the um, the mandate here is to love the creations. And when it says creations, I really do think it means people. Although loving all the creations is also a pretty good thing. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, just one final point. Shmi, were you? Um, did you hear Dennis Prager the other night? I wasn't there for that. Okay, I thought of you because he made an interesting point. Was everybody getting this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he made a very interesting point. He said that the non-Jewish world, most of their interaction with Jews are with non-Torah observant Jews, mm -hmm. and most Torah observant Jews stay within their own community mm -hmm. and don't really interact with non-Jews. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I just thought you would find that interesting you know, it, and I, I think it's a, a point, and I see you and Rabbi Linder, who go out into the community, the non-Jewish community, and you wear your your rabbi on your sleeve, and I think you represent Judaism well, but there aren't too many people that do that. So most of the people, like like you said, they see what's going on in the news with Israel. So most of them don't really get a taste of what real Judaism is and what the Torah is teaching. Uh, I, I I accept the comment. The the one thing that I guess that I would I would hesitate about is the idea of non-Torah observant Jews versus Torah observant Jews, especially in light of Rhonda's comment. That is to say, I wonder if that's not part of the problem. In other words, the idea of uh, um, trying to you know state who's Torah observant and who's not Torah observant, unless somebody was really willing to self-identify that way, I, I wonder if you couldn't say that mm, that they are. Um, uh, interacting with people who might be in some way representative of the Torah, whether a good a, a good one or a bad one. Um, let's go on. The next the next statement is the next um, piece is brief, um, but I think it at least gives some idea of where the idea of Aaron as the peacemaker um, begins. In the Torah, God comes to Moses at the burning bush and he says, "Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go." And Moses says, I can't do that. Oh, no. I, I'll never be able to do that. They won't listen to me. The Jews won't listen to me. Pharaoh won't listen to me. Nobody's going to listen to me in any way. I stutter. I'm not a good speaker. What am I going to do? And God says to him, don't worry. Who's going to come out and, wait and, and meet you and, uh, um, and be your voice, be your microphone? Aaron. Aaron. Aaron, your brother, is coming out to meet you, and when he comes out to meet you, the Torah says, v'samach belibo, he will be happy in his heart. So let's have a look at um, uh, what the Talmud has to say about that statement, he'll be happy in his heart. Uh, Sandy, can you uh, um, read the next one? Rabbi Malahi said, for the mayor come, and he shall see you and rejoice in his heart. He was, he was rewarded with the breastplate upon his heart. So there is some sense that Aaron deserves some kind of reward for being happy for Moses. Why should he get a reward for that? I mean, wouldn't you expect him to be happy for Moses? The reward, the reward of him being happy for Moses is that he gets to be the high priest, right? That's what the breastplate on, on his heart uh, seems to mean, although I don't know if you have other ideas, I'm happy to hear them. But if uh, one would expect that they're brothers. Why wouldn't he be happy? 
because he might think he might think that if he went to Pharaoh, he'd be killed. Interesting. So he might be nervous about the actual uh, project that they're about to do. Um, the rabbis take a slightly different understanding or a different approach to this. Say it out loud. Go ahead, anyway. He might be jealous. Um, all indications from the Torah seem to indicate that Aaron himself was actually a person of status in the Jewish community. He was somebody, a leader of the Jew, of, of the of the Jewish slave community. Now, who was Moses? Well, he was Aaron's brother, and they apparently knew that. That is to say, he apparently knew that Aaron was his brother, perhaps because of his history. Uh, if you recall. Moses is drawn from the rushes um, by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in Pharaoh's house, but his wet nurse is his own mother, his own birth mother, and he has some contact with her as well. So he seems to know that Aaron is his brother, um, but Aaron is actually a leader of the Jews. Moses is an Egyptian of some sort. He belongs to the ruling class, and now he's gone away while Aaron has stayed back and stayed with the people who are suffering, Moses ran. He committed a one-time murder, right? Well, most murders are one time. But he, he committed a murder, a one-time act of resistance against the slavery, very small scale. He killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. And then he fled. And he comes back with the mandate of God that he's going to be the leader of everyone. So what might Aaron be feeling? Jealousy, says Elaine. Resentment. Uh, some kind of question about, like, wait, who is in charge here? By the way, Aaron is the older brother. Um, which maybe it may have been clear already, but I, I think it should be said. Um, and that's not what he, that's not how he responds. He responds with being truly happy for his brother, to see his brother, to find his brother coming back and apparently happy to participate in this endeavor that they're going to be working in together. So that's something. There's something there about the, the personality of somebody who can do that, who can put aside maybe their own interests, put aside their own um, ideas of status and power, and really combine with somebody else in order to, in order to uh, um, pursue a joint goal. That's already somebody who's going to be... Um, a peacemaker, um, and somebody who also is going to be an important person in leadership. And yet, there are also problems with that person. Problem with that person who's able to sort of sublimate his own needs and his own desires and his own beliefs in order to sort of cooperate and compromise with other people. Let's see the next source. Uh, Tamar, do you feel comfortable reading? Okay, we may have to go through this again. I have to give a little background information. This is this week's Torah portion. Moses goes up the mountain. They're, the Jews hear the Ten Commandments, and then they say to Moses, <laughs> that's way too much for 
We can't handle that kind of exposure to God. Tell you what, you go and hear the rest of what God has to say. We'll stay back here. And so Moses goes. He goes up the mountain. How long does he stay there? 40 days and 40 nights, okay? And during that time, so who's going to be in charge? Well, Aaron, and one other person is in charge, a person named Hur. Now, Hur is very interesting. Hur doesn't appear before this in the Torah, and he appears afterwards only in the fact that he is the grandfather of Bitzalel, the artisan who builds the, uh, who builds the, the, uh, the tabernacle. Um, which is interesting and something to develop and, and examine in its own right, but I don't really know where to go with that for right now. Um, so there's a question sort of in the rabbinic imagination. Who is this Hur fellow and where does he come from? Well, Moses goes up the mountain. Aaron and Hur are in charge. And what happens after 40 days and 40 nights? The people start getting anxious. And they say to one another, apparently... Uh-oh, things have, something's gone wrong. Where is Moses? What's happening? And then they turn to Aaron and they say, Make us gods, because Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Now, they went to Aaron. Who should they have gone to? What? Aaron and Hur are supposed to be in charge. So they went just to Aaron? What happened to Hur? They should have gone to Aaron and Hur. Oh, so the rabbis tell us what happened. They went to Hur, and they said to him, we we need a god. Moses was our link, and now he's gone. What are we going to do? You need to make something. And Hur said, are you crazy? We've just gone out of Egypt. You've just seen the parting of the Red Sea. You've just heard God's voice coming from the mountain. You heard Ten Commandments. Uh, How can we make a god now? that, That doesn't make any sense. And the people said, okay, that's it. Three strikes, you're out. And they murder Hur. So now Aaron, now they come to Aaron and they say, okay, <laughs> attempt number one was not successful. What do you have to say? And Aaron thinks to himself, and now this is very interesting because from the Torah's discussion of it, what happens? They come to Aaron and they say this thing and Aaron says, okay, bring me gold and silver um, and, and, and let's... And let's see what happens. And they, they, he, he then uh, creates this calf for them. So, sort of the f- from the simple Torah perspective, it might just sound like Aaron is actually agreeing with them and willing to go along. From at least the beginning of this, the, I, this, this uh, um, Talmudic quotation, you might think that Aaron is concerned with self-preservation. Uh, he doesn't want to to be killed the way Hord is. But the Talmud adds a. Um, a different kind of motivation. Aaron is not thinking about himself, according to the Talmud. And now, right, you can agree or disagree with that. Oh, I don't, right, I really believe that this is what Aaron is concerned with, or no, Aaron is just concerned with self-preservation. In any case, Aaron says there is a prophecy. Um, I, it's, in, uh, it's in the book of uh, Echa, the book of Lamentations. Interesting that he knows the, the Book of Lamentations is about the destruction of the temple. Um, there is a prophecy, uh, shall sh- a, 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 a prophet and a priest be killed in the, in the sanctuary of God? And he said, uh-oh, if the Jews do that, they'll never have a chance to do tshuva. That will be the end of this project of 
the Torah of the Jewish people. By the way, it almost was the end. If you recall, right? God says to Moses, okay, I'm going to destroy all of those people and we're going to make a nation out of you. And if Moses had said yes, then that would have been the end of that particular story and we would have had a different story going forward. But Moses didn't. We'll get to that in a second. In any case, um, Aaron says, I-, I can't let them do that. I can't let them go down this route of violence. Um, I need to make peace in some way. And therefore, better than have them have make a calf, better to do this thing that is what they want than to let them sort of become slaves to violence. So he goes ahead and does it. And of course, the result is this uh, um, catastrophic idolatry right at the very um, beginning part of the... Um, of the Torah's being given. And it seems that it was a mistake. And yet, from this piece in the Talmud, I, I don't know. I have a hard time deciding if it's a mistake or not. Elaine? Why a calf? I mean, they're, they're in the desert. Calves don't roam freely. What are they, does that have meaning that it's a cow? Uh, so it, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure it connects directly no, with this. I will say briefly that um, ca- uh, uh, cows... Um, seem to have the, uh, seem to have a um, an importance in um, in early uh, I don't know Near Eastern is a, is a pro- appropriate word, but early Near Eastern culture um, you can see pictures of winged bulls outside of various um, uh, sanctuaries and temples and things like that, um, and it appears I don't know if you if you if you look closely in, in the text it appear, appears that the word kruv um, the word cherub, which is a, uh, um, the two, uh, I don't know what to call them, statues, uh, that appear in the, in the tabernacle above the ark. Um, that word crew seems to be a synonym for, uh, cow or calf. Uh, Shmuley? I think we see here another layer of possible tension between Aaron and Moshe in that one of the critiques of leaders is often that they're removed from the peop- the conflict am- among the people, right? The, the critique of MLK from the more radicals were, you're in you're inside talking to LBJ, right? You're removed from our everyday conflicts. The the critique of Mandela, you're making you're you're talking with the whites, you're making peace. We don't talk with the terrorists, right? Moshe's over there talking to the terrorists. He's talking to Faro, right? And and Aaron's doing the messy work of dealing with the conflicts among the people. Well, Moses, he's up on the mountain. He's up talking. He's removed from all of it. So in addition to the jealousy, there can be a resentment. Or sometimes I come home for work, and I, and I, and I pray that my wife doesn't feel resentful of me because she's dealing with the con- conflicts among little little beings. Uh-huh. And they come, they hug me like they're all just angels. <laughs> it's easy to feel resentful of the one who's kind of in the thick of the conflicts, having to deal with the messy stuff, when the leader is up front kind of removed from it in some sense. You know? uh, yeah, so I, I think so. Um, I think that what you're, what you're pointing to is an important statement that... Um, that would suggest, I don't see a critique per se of, of Moses here, um, but I don't see necessarily a critique of Aaron as well. That is to say, the Torah is clearly critical of Aaron, um, at the end, uh, in, in, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, the text of the, of the golden calf. Uh, when Moses comes down the mountain, uh, he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you? to make you do this because you've brought on them a huge sin. 
And then further on, it says, uh, Moses saw that the people were wild uh, because Aaron had stirred them up in some way. So the Torah seems to be critical of him. The rabbis explain what's going on here, and they explain it in a way that, on one hand, doesn't make him come out smelling like a rose, and yet, on the other hand, still gives him some purity of purpose. And the question is, so what was he supposed to do in that case? And that really does get to the, the question of, so the person who has to really handle people, um, what are they supposed to do? Um, it's an election, election season, so we can, we can think about these things. I see you, Jeff. Um, there is a question in my mind, which is, how much of, uh, is a leader supposed to be um, responsive to his constituency, and how much is a leader supposed to follow the vision and hold the line, even if it means perhaps self-sacrifice? Um, I think that's an important question and one that we're going to get to in the next source. Jeff? This may be too realistic, but you're talking about Aaron who's got to be in his 90s. Moses is 80. And you have you know, a group of, of maybe younger people. I don't know how old Chor uh, was, because nobody does. <laughs> but if he's a young guy, he's you know willing to be a little bit more radical, exactly like you were saying. Uh, Aaron has wisdom. I mean, he is in his, he's old. He's an old guy. Mm-hmm. And people might listen to an old guy in a different way. An old guy just has more wisdom than a young guy. That's interesting. What and, I'm... Oh, go ahead. And, and but he ought to, because he's an old guy. I like to think. Well, that's okay. As I become older and older. Um, as, I mean, so there are dynamics. And, you know, actually going back to the, the previous discussion, Moses is 80, Aaron is older. Uh, Aaron, see, Moses has been gone 50, 60 years. I mean, there's a lot of sort of real-time dynamics in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how that plays out. Actually... I've been heavily influenced, because I get influenced easily, by the Rabin film that we just saw at the Jewish Film Festival, who started out when he was a young guy, was a general, a very successful general in his 20s, he was a general, and by the end, he was an old guy in his 70s trying to make peace, who got killed by a young guy. Right. Uh, Right. And so sometimes you you add a little bit of realism in terms of ages and things like that. I hear that, and I hear as an undertone of what you're saying also... That um, that when that mm, that that Aaron may have been extremely anxious um, about what was going on here, but maybe he didn't value his own influence yeah. the way he could he should have. In other words, m- there can there can be another response than to say "Get out of here, you people, crazy!" On one hand, and on the other hand, saying "Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it your way." Mm-hmm. Right? There could be a way of of um, helping these people along. It <laughs> brings me back, and I don't know, maybe we'll come continue to come full circle to the story of Hillel with um, a person who says, convert me and, and tell me the whole Torah on one, while I stand on one foot. Um, right? There's in a sense that actually there are ways to help people find satisfaction without necessarily following along with exactly what they want. Um, and maybe that is a, a mistake of Aaron's. Um, the next sta- the next source is um, is really the one that that for me um, sort of lays out the the tensions between somebody who's willing to compromise and somebody who's not. Can somebody just tell me the times so that I have a sense of? Quarter two, okay, great. Um, 
someone the, the tensions between someone who's willing to compromise versus someone who's willing to not oh, somebody who's willing to not somebody who is not willing to compromise um, and the question of okay so who really should be in charge between those two let's have a look um, at um, source number four um, Marion can you read Okay, the key here to me is this distinction between Moses and Aaron. The question is, are you allowed to compromise when you go to court? Two people come to court, um, and they lay their, uh, their positions in front of the judge. This one says, you owe me money, and this one says, I don't owe you money, right? Um, once they've done that, are they allowed to say, you know what, this may not be a court matter, Let's, let's talk this over. Maybe we can come to some kind of compromise. And according to Rabbi Yosei, uh, sorry, is it Rabbi Yosei Agalili? Uh, yes. According to Rabbi Yosei the Galilean, um, no, that's not what you do. What you do is when you've got a conflict, you go to a judge, you each lay down your positions, and then he chooses who's right and who's wrong. It's interesting. That's not entirely the way Jewish law works. It's not also, I mean, by the way, we don't hold this into, uh, according to Jewish law. This is not the way that, uh, that we ultimately decide is the correct, the correct way. Um, my understanding, although I'm no lawyer, is that actually a judge can um, essentially say, I'm not going to decide this. Go out and, um, and mediate it. Find some way to, to come to some kind of conclusion. That is an option. In any case, though, there is a position that says no. And who is the, 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 uh, um, the model for that position? Moses. Moses says, Yikov hadin etahar. Let justice bore straight through the mountain. Whatever, whatever kinds of difficulties or what Shmuley calls messy, right, messy business that, that, that stands in, in between, uh, that's not my concern. My concern is truth. My concern is justice. Yikov hadina tahar. And Aaron has a different position. Aaron's position is, and notice that this is a different language than what, what Hillel said, right? Aaron loves peace and pursues peace, but doesn't necessarily bring, bring people close to the Torah. He actually goes out of his way to try to bring peace between different people. Now, these are the two models. And who is actually in charge at the end of the day? Between Moses and Aaron, who's in charge? Moses. Moses is in charge. There can be no question about that. The Torah is the Torah of Moses. Um, and the rabbis knew that. The rabbis knew that, that, is the, that this is the Torah of Moses. And Moses says, uh, right, let justice bore through the mountain. Let me give you some examples. 
Moses sees a, an Egyptian taskmaster master beating a Hebrew slave. Now, there are, Moses is an Egyptian prince. He is someone of status. There are a lot of different ways to address this. But Moses sees something that is not right. He responds by killing the Egyptian. Um, when Moses comes down the mountain and finds the calf, what does he do? He smashes the Ten Commandments for whatever reasons, but at least one of them could be there can be no divine law while, while you are engaging in this kind of worship. Either you'll do this or you'll do that. There's no compromise. He grinds, he burns the calf. He grinds it up. And then he goes on a rampage with the house of Levi, the Levites, um, and they kill off many, many people. <laughs> the, the, the number is not in my head. Um, but he kills off a good portion of the number of, of, of the children of Israel. That's his solution. That's his solution to what just happened. It's funny. Aaron's solution, right, was I would rather have them be, have them worship this calf than be uh, overcome by violence. Moshe's solution is they have done something that's so, um, so unforgivable that the only solution, the only way I can get them back is to kill off the ones who are involved. Yeah. So I'm, uh, the other side of that coin is mm -hmm. Torah is, is really the Torah of Aaron and his sons, uh, because you know, because because that's really uh, in whose hands the tradition lies, and um, and Moses um, uh, is really written out of the story. Hmm. Uh, so interesting. Um, can, can you say a little bit more? In other words, well, why is it well, necessarily in their hands? Well, it's just the the, the tradition. I mean, the you know. Family business is, uh, in terms of the ritual life of the community, is um, is Aaron and uh, and his sons in that family line, and there is no family line of Moses, and there and there is no tradition, you know, within you know even even today, uh, connected to Moses other than he's our greatest prophet because right. he brought us this. But in terms of how the story goes. That is, that is interesting, and it relates to what the, the, the piece that we're going to see next. Um, you know, what's interesting is that when we talk about the uh, lineage of the Torah, um, the Torah, although there's no family line of the Torah, the Torah, at least as it's understood by the rabbis, doesn't seem to go through the prophets. Um, the, or, sorry, doesn't seem to go through the priests, Right? We say, Moses received the Torah from Sinai, and he gave it to Joshua, and Joshua gave it to the, uh, the, the elders, and the elders gave it to the prophets, and the prophets gave it to the men of the great assembly. One would have thought that, the, I mean, it's a natural thought to think that the priests should be in there somewhere, especially if you think the Torah itself says, if you have a problem, you know, if you can't decide what to do, you should go to the priest. Um... Although it also says you should also you could go to the judge, um, both of those are are mentioned side by side unless it means the priest who is the judge. Um, in any case, um, on one hand, what you say sort of sort of as a matter of fact seems to me to be clearly true. That is to say, Moses has children, but they don't have any importance in the in the tradition. Whereas Aaron's children 
do have importance in the continuation. And yet, um, the, the legacy of Moses remains. Um, and and I, I, I think that uh, um, that's, that is, is, uh, is, is, is very, um, very clear from the next piece, which is the, the way that the, that the rabbis learn about Aaron, um, that he w- did this, that he was this peaceful person, um, is not from his engagement with the golden calf. Rather, it is a description of the ideal priest from the, um, from the book of Malachi, from the book of Malachi. Um, and let's have a look. Um, I think I would like to start um, on line five. Um, Rhonda, can you read? And I think what you, uh, the best would be to um, to learn read um, from line five to line eight. Okay, you mean including eight? No, oh. not including eight. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him, and of fear, and he feared me and was afraid of my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and did turn away, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should keep the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Okay. So this goes very strongly to uh, to what uh, Rev. Linden's. Uh, um, statement says, which is, the priest is the leader. He's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He's the one who people should come to. And yet, if we look at this textually, um, I'm not sure that it's talking about Aaron. Let's think of it, of it for a moment. Um, the, the, let's start with, my covenant was with him of life and peace. In Hebrew, uh, mine is a mess. Um, <laughs> Are they all a mess? I don't know what happened. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it's something like, <laughs> right? Um, uh, hold on a second. No, I need this. Um, and that's, that's the mess. Um, it's something like briti ito, something and shalom. Brit and shalom. Covenant and peace. Now, that appears somewhere in, re- in relationship to priests, but not in relationship to Aaron. Let's have let's see the, the line. Oh, thank you. Briti haita ito hachayim v'hashalom. My covenant was with him, life and peace. Who is the priest who has a covenant of peace with God? Rav Linden? Linder, I'm sorry. I'm not testing you. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't... It's, uh, I mean, um, you know, the, the, uh, Abraham. Abraham wasn't a, Abraham wasn't a priest. Yeah, I'm talking about a real Kohen. Shmuley, Briti Shalom. Oh, uh, uh, Pinchas. Pinchas. Who is Pinchas? Pinchas is Aaron's grandson. And what does Pinchas do? Pinchas is the one who, when the Jews start... Uh, being seduced, uh, I'm, uh, it's always hard for me to, to say these things in such such clear, uh, um, such hard hard um, hard phrases. But at least the way the Torah presents it, they're being seduced by the uh, Midianite women, and there is a Jewish man and a Midianite woman who are uh, engaging in 
uh, sexual activities in the, the sanctuary, in the tabernacle itself. Pinchas takes a spear and goes in there and stabs the two of them and comes out with them on the end of his spear. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the response to that, God says to Moses, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron hakohen, Pinchas the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the priest, he, retur- he t- turned back my anger from B'nai Israel. Israel b'chamati. And now I'm, I'm misquoting, but the key part is right. He says, shalom." Therefore, I give him my covenant of peace. Who is the peacemaker? At least in that small context. The vigilante, the zealot, the one who leaves no room for anybody to believe anything except for the the, the hard uh, um, the hard line. That's the person who has the the, the message of peace. Um, let's look on in the in this in the in these psukim because we have other suggestions, um, right? He walked with me in peace and uprightness. Okay, that could be anything, but he did turn many away from iniquity. Does that sound like Aaron? Think about Aaron and the golden calf. Is he turned people away from iniquity? It depends what iniquity is exactly. But that that has a flavor to me of that person who um, who is not willing to compromise. That person who, right, there's iniquity and there's uprightness. And there's no way, if you are if you are one of the iniquitous, right? then I need to turn you away from that. I need to heal you of your disease. So it sounds to me that this group of psukim is a reference to maybe the least compromising and least peace-loving person um, in the Torah and maybe in the whole Tanakh. Um, One more example... Um, when the Jews co- cross the, the Jordan River, there are two and a half tribes who stay behind. Um, and those tribes um, build, a, um, build an altar on the other side of the Jordan. And Joshua sees this and he's extremely concerned. What are they doing? What's going on over there? They've separated themselves from the main group. And now, what exactly is going on over them? So who does he send? Talk about old. He sends Pinchas. He sends Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, over there. And when Pinchas gets there, oh my goodness, everybody falls all over themselves to try to explain to him that what they're doing is actually not something that is, is idolatrous or problematic. Oh, so turns people away from iniquity. When you know what this fellow is capable of, you don't want to be trying to compromise with him. What you want to do is get him convinced that you're going to that you're you're actually on the right side. You're walking the path of uprightness, which leads to the question. I mean, the rabbis know everything that I know. Why is it? And maybe with this we'll finish. Why is it that the rabbis chose to interpret this pasuk as being about Aaron, and being about loving peace and pursuing peace and making peace? between different people. I'll just go one step further in, a, in the source that I don't think we're going to have time to see. Um, the next source 
is uh, is about the uh, um, is about how exactly did Aaron make peace between people? Oh, excuse me, that's not even the source. I'm not even sure I brought that source. The the uh, the, Tal- the the rabbis say it's not in the Talmud. It's in a, a source called Avot Rabbi Natan. Um, say that what did Aaron do? Two people were fighting, and he would go to the first one. And he would say, "Oh, I just visited Shmuley," and um, he feels terrible. He wants to make up. He doesn't want to fight anymore. Uh, surely you can find some way to forgive him. He wants your forgiveness. And then he would go to Shmuley and say, I just visited Chagai. And uh, he feels awful. And he just wants to make up. And the two people under, with, under false prejudices entirely would come together and, according to the, this story, would make up. That's Aaron. Aaron doesn't say, oh, let's figure out who's right or wrong. He doesn't say, oh, let's, let's figure out, you know, who started it. What's the problem? And interesting, it goes to your question of who's at fault. That's not of interest to him. What's of interest is who is ready to come back together. And if people can really believe that the other side is ready to come back together, then that actually makes them more ready to come back together. And so he would tell outright lies to people in order to get that to happen. So here's my question. How did we turn this pasuk which I've tried to make the, the case, is really about Pinchas, the zealot, the quintessential zealot, and say that it's about Aaron, the one who goes around trying to, trying to make peace between people. I think the answer is as follows. The rabbis lived in a time of tremendous zealotry and tremendous calamity, and they saw what happens when you're not able to compromise with others. They saw people who held the hard line and demanded constant justice and constant truth, and, and, and they saw that it ultimately led to a terrible destruction. And the same Hillel, who I mentioned before, said there are these two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. So the truth is, it seems that Hillel and Shammai themselves got along pretty well. But Hillel's students and Shammai's students were the sorts of people who would... Um, try to, they would seize control. I can try to imagine like um, a situation like in in Congress where they would um, cook up some, the, the, uh, you know, one party would cook up some kind of reason for all the members of the other party to be gone, come together, form a quorum, and vote up all kinds of of laws that that the other side disagreed with. That's the kind of thing that happened. There's this constant fight over who's right. And ultimately, it leads to a zealotry that opposes Rome, because Rome is wicked, and, and, um, and joining Rome and, and uh, colluding with the Roman government is, um, is evil, and ultimately ends in a destruction. And I don't know if this is well known, but the rabbis did not feel warmly towards um, people who took zealot, zealous positions. Uh, they didn't feel warmly towards the Maccabees, and they didn't feel warmly towards the zealots who had, in their eyes, destroyed the temple um, in, um, in, the, uh, uh, in their time. And so what we see in the rabbinic literature is a shift away from a kind of violent, hard-line leadership to a desire for somebody who can bring people together 
and who can make compromises and who can figure out what is going on, even if it sometimes leads to disastrous mistakes, at least that person has in mind peace as the ultimate value as opposed to some kind of um, as opposed to some kind of a perceived truth. And the last thing I'll say is that the rabbis have a sent, have a statement. Um, it's it's based on it's in, it comes from the midrash on Breshit. When God goes to destroy Sodom and Amorah, Abraham says to God, "Hashofet et kol haaretz lo yasemishpat." Um, should uh, can the judge of the whole land not do justice? And the rabbis interpret it and they say, "Hashofet et kol haaretz." If you judge, and if you think you're going to do justice, then you can't possibly have an aretz. The world cannot exist in justice. If you're going to have an aretz, lo yasemishpat. Therefore, you will not do, you cannot do justice. At some point, you need to compromise on the nature of truth and the nature of justice in order to create some kind of peace. And that seems to me to be the ultimate message here in this rabbinic piece that at the end of the day, although Moses was a hard-line leader and he is our greatest prophet, the person who can lead us to a, um, to a, a, a life that doesn't, isn't constantly overwhelmed by violence is somebody who can really see peace as the ultimate value. Are there any final comments or questions that I can answer before we, uh, we wrap up? Yes, Randy. So how how you relate that to leadership today, like whether leadership of our country versus leadership of Jewish communal organizations, leadership of synagogues, I mean So like a like a good rabbi, I'm gonna not answer and instead I'm gonna say that there is a tension between two poles. But I think that I said pretty clearly which I think the rabbis of the Talmud um and therefore, I think at a certain point, the, um, you know, the rabbinic establishment um, held to be the one that was appropriate for their time. And thinking over the, the kind of tensions that we see inside the Jewish world and outside of the Jewish world, um, you know, I think that there is um, a, strong, a strong reason to look at these sources and say, you know, the light, the world that they were looking at is not so different from the world that we're familiar with, and the kinds of risks and the kinds of, um, of goals that they're looking at are not so different. Um, now, right, somebody who can, somebody who is so blinded by the desire for peace that they lose all sense of what is necessary to maintain peace, right, peace is not a simple thing. It's not so, it's not as easy um, to go to uh, two sides of an international conflict and say, oh, <laughs> the Israelis really feel bad about what's been going on. They really want to make peace. And then go into the, and say, oh, the Palestinians feel awful about everything that's been happening. And, and right, at the end of the day, that's not a, a, um, a real tactic for peace. Um, but some sense of peace being the goal um, I think is is the is the the model that's being uh, um, um, you know d- discussed here and, and seen as the as the the ideal. Although at the same time, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is what rabbis do: is we're we're torn between these two poles. It's Moses. It's not just anybody. It's Moses who is uh, 
who's the who represents this idea of truth and justice and let the uprightness sort of stand right we cannot compromise we cannot uh, um, you know we cannot let the 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 iniquitous prevail um, that's no small thing yeah please this is not exactly where we want to go but I feel like I want to say it anyways <laughs> um, which is if I were to critique the rabbis in this situation. Mm-hmm. It would be that they come to this conclusion because they em- embrace an ethic of powerlessness. Hmm. Uh, the rabbis, uh, there are zealots who are trying to regain power and sovereignty, and the rabbis are kind of content having their Talmud and ha- kind of being put away. And so the ethic of the powerless is to say, compromise. Right? And historically, we have a stereotype of women being compromisers and men being hardliners. Right? Women are trying to navigate the conflicts, and you wait till your father comes home, and he's going to put down the real, you know, the real stuff. Right, that that compromise is weak. It's for it's for women. It's for the powerless. Right, that a, a, a true man is going to be a person of principle, of conviction, and, and is going to is going to fight to the end for that for that heroic principle. Right. So I think someone might say that um, that the rabbis weren't necessary. Judaism is not authentically pro peace. It's more Moshe, um, but the rabbis were in a stage of powerlessness of of galut of dispersion, and so this kind of like it says in Pirkei Avot, who's the Who's the hero? The one who can, you know, control their inner world, right? That's a powerless ethic. The hero generally is the person who's strongest, the one who's in the IDF. They go to war. They're willing to fight, right? They're, they're, they're uh, whoever the case is. But they, these rabbis, they're kind of meek. They just want to study and they'll work on their inner lives a little bit. So I, I say I don't want to go there because I want to. <laughs> I want to raise up compromise. I want to actually make the case that it is more deeply Jewish. But I felt like I needed to say that that historically we may have been in a position where that became the conclusion. And um, um, if you look, you couldn't go to the secular courts for generations. You had to kind of take care of your own matters. So anyways, I, I wanted to throw that out for, for any reflections on that. But. I mean, I think that's a, that's a very legitimate um, um, critique. Um, at the same time, I mean, the rabbis are describing... A world where, um, where they're that is to say, they are responding from their own historical reality, and that they're also speaking about the Torah, mm-hmm. um, and what is what is the leadership in the Torah, and it's not so clear that they. Um, it's clear that Moses is in charge and Aaron isn't, but at the same time, there is some sense of um, of the sense of this polarity that this, that there could actually be a partnership between these two these two people, um, and that their vision is a vision that do, of of a world that do, that does have power. So where where they themselves do have power. So I guess what do I want to say about what, what, where am I trying to go with that? Um, I can't I can't dispute the psychology of the rabbis. And yeah, maybe that's what it is. Although. Maybe not. I just say maybe they were able to look beyond that and see, um, you know, a, a different kind of of world that's not a result of them being powerless. In other words, a, a psycho the a, a psychological analysis of the rabbis is a, is a, is as speculative as as anything else. Um, the fact that they represent a tension between two poles um, of leadership to me, suggests that they're not willing to totally discard the one, and yet, simultaneously, I think they do value the others, not merely for the, um, 
for the uh, um, for the, the the idea that allows them to sort of live a a status quo life under the thumb of somebody else. Um, it also strikes me as I mean I think it could make the counter the counter argument that it's a tremendously realistic position, and maybe realists don't necessarily make revolutions, um, but at the same time. Um, to rise up militarily against Rome may not have been a was was not ultimately a wise decision. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to rise up against Greece, right? The 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 Hashmonaim, that was that turned out to be a good decision for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to me that there's something realistic about this that you kind of need to look and see what is the. You know where 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 is the wind blowing and and what is, what is needed right now? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of interesting. We rarely see major compromises in the Jewish people. We just saw one this past month at the Kotel. And of course, it leaves a whole bunch of sides unhappy. You have uh, all good compromises. A sort of a hardcore Orthodox side that says no, there's no legitimacy legitimacy to non-Orthodoxy and to Inter, you know, uh, mixed prayer, and you see another side is that's not enough. There's no legitimacy, legitimacy to orthodoxy having any power over this, and this is not enough of a space. And those in the middle say, "Look, this is not going to be perfect for either of us, but we have to live together as a Jewish people." I think it's an interesting precedent in in Jewish history to have worked out some on a national, international level, some wet form of coexistence in a, in a space like this. That's far from perfect, but might lead to you know some sort of peace within the Jewish people. And brings to mind what what Jeff brought up a little earlier. This idea of um, and what I, what I hear you saying and, and what I firmly believe, which is that every good compromise. People say like, oh, a good compromise leaves everybody happy. Where I would say actually, a really good compromise leaves everybody equally unhappy. Um, that right. The the problem of the golden calf was the problem that actually one side ended up way too happy with it. Um, and that what Aaron needed to do in his compromise sort of stance was to try to figure out some way to pull the Jews away from from that uh, um, perspective, and yet somehow create something that would that would satisfy them, and yet and yet not be a, a, a complete uh, idolatrous act. Mm, just just to to extend extend a little bit, it seems that he tried to do that by creating some what we call shituf. Uh, saying, "Oh, this calf and God, um, those are the things. Those are the people who. Those are the thing. The gods that brought us out of Egypt. Um, that wasn't a good enough compromise. <laughs> wasn't good enough. It didn't. It made the Jews too happy and, not, and God too unhappy." Thank you very much. It's been really wonderful to uh, to learn with you and uh, to meet you all. Thank you so much uh, for flying.